1957, in a neighborhood of Richmond, Virginia, Marietta McCarty first encountered what would become her beloved family home. Um, my first memories are living in apartments, and I know that my parents were on the search for a house for us. And we used to ride around on Sunday afternoons and look at the possibilities. And then we saw this three-bedroom castle on a hill. And uh, it's a pine and oak covered sort of forested hideaway in Richmond. And in the days we moved in, dogs and children freely roamed the, the streets and walked in and out of neighbors' houses, and it was the most welcoming neighborhood. And um, my mother lived there until 2013. My father had died about 20 years before that, but it was a house that four generations called home and loved dearly. Following her mother's death, McCarty found herself bereaved and emptying a place that held not just decades of things, but memories and even secrets. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, emptying a home. Later in the show, the writer of a book on poetry and mourning eulogizes his own father. But first, when you're grieving and faced with emptying the family home, how do you decide what to do with the contents? Marietta McCarty teaches at Piedmont Virginia Community College. She's the author of Leaving 1203, Emptying a Home, Filling the Heart. Her book is a reflection on memory, family, grief, and what she calls good living. Marietta, how daunted were you when you finally faced the prospect of trying to sort through the things in your mother's house and your childhood home? I was the epitome of daunted. I was completely overwhelmed with the task before me, uh, emotionally, physically, you know, heart's broken. And then I, I faced the, the physical responsibility for what to do with the things in the house. You grew up in that house. It was also a wonderful childhood. You're one of those lucky people who had terrific parents. That's right. And I realized more and more what terrific parents I had, and I certainly realized it in the process of home emptying when I had so much time for reflection because of the things that I found. But I had parents who loved me and always treated me as a, a priority in their lives. And your friends love going there. My friends love going there. Sometimes I would come home at the end of the day and find some friends already there, visiting with my parents <laughs> and laughing and eating snacks or down in the basement or throwing a ball in the yard. So, yes, it was a very – the house itself has a, has a cozy feel, and I think that there was just so much joy. One of the most striking times for me in home emptying, Sarah, was when I – came back to the house for the first time with nobody there to greet me and went up the driveway. And I just sat in the backyard and looked at the path. It's probably 10 steps from the gate to the back stoop. And I wondered how many feet had crossed that path over and over and over and come to this landing pad of a small back stoop to come in the kitchen door. And so it was just, it was just I just sat for the half a day and just spent some time in the backyard just looking at the back of the house being on the patio that was built once we moved in and soaking up those years before I began my task. How hard is it 
to decide what to do with a house full of memories and stuff. I don't know of anything that's that's more difficult. And um, for me, I'm a, an immaterial girl of, of some repute, and things don't generally mean a lot to me. But what I found once family and close friends had taken things they wanted from the house was that I had a full house. And uh, so what to do? And I looked around, and everything had value, and it had value in a non-monetary way. I couldn't name the price for a thimble or a bucket or a rake uh, because they were priceless. And paradoxically, I was struck powerfully at the beginning by two things. One is that I had never felt so desolate at the task in front of me, which is to empty 56 years of good living, the place where that had occurred. And yet, Sarah, the the thing that also struck me simultaneously is probably two blocks from here, someone else is doing the same thing. Wait, I thought, people have been doing this forever. And I feel that I'm the only one that this has ever happened to. And yet this is the universal experience right here, saying farewell to a place that you've loved and knowing it's for the last time. And saying farewell in a very different way to your parents. Yes, yes. Um, I will say this. The whole three months I was emptying the house, I felt that everybody who had lived there had my back in some way. You know, they were kind of pulling for me because they left all these things there after all. And so, um, you know, and the house filled for the three months that I took to empty it with friends, uh, childhood friends, college friends, new friends from the neighborhood because I'd lived there for a year with my mother. And there was this this sort of three-month house party of good feeling in the house. So I guess in a way it was like saying goodbye but also hello to my parents in a new way because that old house had some secrets for me and I learned more about the people who loved me first and I thought I knew best but I learned so many things about my grandparents and my parents that I had not known before. Secrets in what way? Do you mean you came across letters you'd never read? Well, surely I did that, but I did not know that my grandmother, as a single mother with two little girls during the Depression, uh, making a living as a massage therapist, had had time to write 30 short stories. And, you know, some somewhere in the past I had heard, oh, your grandmother used to, to write stories, but I had never seen them. And there was one envelope in particular I just rubbed on and, and pretended that I was opening because it came from New York, from Broadway. And it was from an editor, G. Glenwood Clark. And he had written notes in the margins. And so my grandmother was very, very close to getting short stories published during the Depression. And so I'm imagining this woman with these two little girls and this responsibility, her younger sister helped take care of them during the day and coming home and tucking them in and then writing short stories, you know, so this indomitable spirit during the Depression. Another thing that you decided to keep from that very full house was a leather satchel that your father had owned during World War II. Yes, it was the satchel that he carried as a Navy pilot. And I found that in the basement, uh, which was sort of his lair, where he paid the bills and read. And my father is the gentlest man, perhaps, I've, I've ever met in my life. And 
I can only imagine going through this bag was the way he taught me about the Second World War. He never did it uh, through any conversation that we had. He would mention friends that he had been in the war with, and he would talk about flight training in Pensacola, but he never talked about actual war. What I did know is that he flew uh, rescue planes um, in the Pacific Theater. And so in this bag, Sarah, and it took me about in the evenings I would treat myself towards the very end of, of leaving the house. I would read through uh, sections of the of the messenger bag. And they began when he was a college boy at Washington Lee with his dashing friends and all these happy photographs. He graduates from Washington Lee in May of 42 and June 5th. He receives his draft orders, and I just held those draft orders and imagined what that was like for a man who is an only child responsible for his mother, and um, my mother was his girlfriend in, in Richmond at the time, and he was off to flight school just three weeks after graduation. And so what I see are a lot of photographs of of him working his way through Washington Lee in the summers as a lifeguard at the ocean at Virginia Beach and how happy and in, in, this is in, you know, the early 40s when war has definitely broken out. And yet they're savoring every ounce of, of joy at the beach. And then the mood shifts abruptly into his military service. And I see him in front of his plane with his crew and the names of the crew members on the back and their hometowns. And one thing my mother told me was that when the war was over, uh, before my father looked for a job, they traveled the country to see the families of the people whose child had died uh, under my father's command and that he couldn't look for a job until he went to see those families. So there is something profound and more intimate than most anything when objects are left to speak for themselves. Something else you found that I love was a clipping by one of the great baseball players of your parents' time, Satchel Paige. Well, he was probably the greatest baseball player of many eras. Satchel Paige, I think, played baseball into his 60s, and he played an exhibition match in Richmond, and we went to see him. And he was all arms and legs. And so the clipping was his tips for good living. You know, don't eat fried foods. They angry up the blood. Don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. <laughs> and Satchel Paige has always given me um, great hope because my dream as a child was to play Major League Baseball. And it was left to my father to tell me one day in the basement that I would not be able to grow up and play second base for the Yankees. But if Satchel Paige was still playing at 60, I thought, I've got a long time. You know, I might make it. You were actually a, a wonderful tennis player. Had your father led you into tennis? Everybody led me to tennis because I was determined to play Major League Baseball. So you know, my grandmother gave me a racket. Somebody else gave me balls. And my father didn't play, but he took me out on the courts and got perilously close to me, uh, tossed me balls to hit. And it did become the game for me. And, yes, I played in college. I played nationally. And I got to, got to see places in the world I would never have seen. And it, it was a great experience. And if you major in philosophy, it's good to have a backup plan. <laughs> And, of course, you were growing up and playing tennis in the same city where the great tennis player Arthur Ashe now has a statue. That's exactly right, on Monument Avenue. And what's interesting about that, Sarah, is in 1963, and I found the clipping and I found the the tennis racket and the ball from this event, um, I played in the first integrated tennis match on the public courts of Richmond in 1963. And I remember 
how extraordinary that whole week was, but I didn't understand why. I knew that people were very nervous, the organizers of the tournament, and there was anxiety in carpools. Grownups weren't talking very much, and nobody was really, it was just a strange thing. And I was usually seated first, meaning expected to win the tournament. And in this one, the year of the end tournament, there was somebody else who was expected to win, seated first. And when I got to the court that day with my mother, there was no place to park for a mile. So I said, all these people, they're not possibly here for my match. And she said, oh, yes, they are, sweetie. They're, they're here for the match. And I looked at the stands where my father was, and it was you know, completely divided by color. And people sitting all over the grounds divided by color. And it was the best match I ever played. I lost 6-4-7-5 to Bonnie Logan. Bonnie Logan went on to the big time. She went on to Wimbledon. She went on to the U.S. Open and the French. And um, she was the real star and the bravest girl in town on that particular day. Uh, that was August 16th of 63. So it's two weeks later, Dr. King gives his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial. And what interested me is that the Richmond clipping I found, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, in covering the match, the headline is, Top Seed Wins Despite Heroic Upset Attempt from McCarty. <laughs> and I thought, that's not at all what I think happened there. And in this long, long article that describes the match in such great detail, no explanation for the size of the crowd is ever given. So that was another sort of this house... This 1203 had these these secrets in it for me. And so it was a, another way of looking at my unwitting uh, participation in the civil rights movement. What advice do you have as you sort of stumbled your way through very beautifully in emptying your own parents' home? What advice do you have for others and how to even begin? I think that I had on some level, dreaded this job for the better part of my adult life because only one thing would have brought me to this place. So I would say cut yourself a break and realize that it's not only a physical job, it is a very emotional job. And um, if you're lucky, it will also be spiritual job. What I would suggest in terms of advice is to take your time. And so if there are things that you can't look at at the time, Take them with you. And the other is to do one thing at a time. So I would do, for example, just a couple of closets one day or the pantry three days so that you feel a sense of accomplishment that you've done this or done that. And I would say uh, also in terms of advice to go into it with the possibility that you may come out as I did Loving more, more grateful, more glad to be on the planet, more sturdy in your roots, and just uh, more aware of, of what really constitutes good living. Did you come away thinking, where do we get all the stuff we have? I came away understanding how all the things came to be in that house. That's what I understood for the first time. I understood firsthand about the deprivation of the depression during these three months of home emptying. So the fact that purchasing um, a cut glass bowl filled them with pleasure, I understand now in a way that I didn't then. When you've been through the depression and the Second World War, who am I to say, as I'm unfortunately going to admit, I did say, you know, could we 
would, would you like to clear some of this out right now? So um, I'm not going to lay, I think, Sarah, on on those four generations of why was there all, all this still here when they were coming from a different place. Um, it's easy now for us to be, you know, uh, aware in terms of environmental reasons and all sorts of things. Uh, why not so much stuff? But to them, it wasn't stuff. Tell me about the day when you finally realized you were done. I'll never forget it, August 8th. And um, I spent some time sitting on the patio and just realizing that three months had passed and how much I'd learned about what good living entails how important relationship is, how lucky we are to be alive, how grateful I should be for the rest of my life. And so I end the book with the story of leaving. I deadheaded plants, filled bird feeders and bird baths, swept the patio, grabbed Billy's, the dog's leash from the stoop railing, packed a few last things in the car. Recognizing the opening notes of a hymn ringing out from the nearby carolyn, I snapped out of my dawdling ways. That one song, of all songs, soaring over 1203 at this moment and for the first time in my memory. How sweet the sound. Gumption time. I patted the kitchen counter, closed the door behind me, latched the back gate, and lifted Billy into the car. Strains of an old tune saluted our departure, those splendid church bells pealing, Amazing Grace. On the drive back to Charlottesville, I reached for the windshield wipers, laughing through my tears at the sunny day. These tears, triggered by beauty, dropped like beads from my eyes. I've caught a lot of breaks in my life, but none compares to this opportunity to stop, to turn, and to look back at all the lives intertwined at 1203, to appreciate them together and alone in their fullness. Everyone did their best. As the chronicler of this time, I conclude that all is well. Everyone is young and healthy. The world is as ever full of promise. Our lives wrapped up in so many other lives then and now, still rich in love. Good rises, stretches, expands. And grace will lead us home. Well, Marietta, I am charmed by your book called Leaving 1203, The Number of Your House, Your Beloved House. Thank you for sharing with me and with good reason. Sarah, thanks for having me. Marietta McCarty teaches at Piedmont Virginia Community College. Her book is Leaving 1203, Emptying a Home, Filling the Heart. Coming up next, a son eulogizes a father. When I knew we'd be doing a show on grief, I remembered a memorial service I attended in 2016. It was for a beloved faculty member of the University of Virginia, Rui Ramazani. And what stayed with me most was the eulogy by his son, Jahan. And I invited Jahan here to share it with listeners. Jahan Ramazani is the Edgar F. Shannon Professor of English at the University of Virginia and the author of, among other books, one called Poetry of Mourning. Jahan, I was there when you read the eulogy to your father. How did you come to be the one? Had he asked you? He clearly wanted me to do it, uh, and it was a tough thing to do. It was beautiful. 
I knew your father, but there was so much in your eulogy I did not know about him. Well, that's great to hear. I was trying to be true to him as a person, but also to my somewhat complicated feelings about him. Would you read that eulogy for us now? Sure. Dear Dad, we're gathering to remember you today. Close friends of yours readily agreed to speak. All of us kids and grandkids are attending, and of course, Mom, who gave you more love and care and support than anyone. I miss you so much. The whole family misses you. We didn't know so many people would miss you. I'm sorry that all our love couldn't protect you from that last terrible fall. Cancer, heart failure, stroke. You survived it all, living much longer than you expected. Who knew your own stairs would take you? I'm sorry your goldfish swim around lost and aimless because you're not there to feed them. I miss your voice, Baba. The reassurance of the silly, mock-formal Persian we put on at the start of our daily call. I miss your touch, Baba. Those hands that were hard when we were kids, but became soft and gentle with age. That stubble on your face, too, once razor-sharp, but later smooth as a toothbrush. I miss your smell, Baba that too potent cologne that lingered on us for days after our family dinners. We miss eating with you, Baba. Kebab, Baremjun, Tadik, all the foods you loved. We miss seeing you, Baba. That head you were pleased still had more hair than mine. That head of yours, even with the fog of insomnia and stroke, your intellect and wit pierced through. In your last hours, you predicted in your hospital bed, Trump will be our next president. We thought maybe you were out of it, but as usual, you understood politics with more acuity than any of us. That head of yours. On that last day, when it was cradled in a brace, bones broken all down your neck and spine, You kept asking in Persian for your parched mouth to be swabbed with water. You said, ab. You have to say swab, not ab, Baba, or the nurse won't know what you're saying after Mom and I leave for the night. An hour later, showing you could still learn despite the body's wreckage, you said to me with a twinkle of pride, swab, swab. Baba, put the slippers you left to wear at our house up on the sideboard with the obituary and pictures. Maybe one of your beloved grandchildren will walk in them someday. But for now, they sit like two empty black canoes that have crossed a river. Baba, even if I can't speak with you again, I will be thanking you the rest of my life for the values and memories you've left me the family, the world. Baba, I'm glad we said it often in your later years, but I want to say it just once more. Baba, Baba, I love you. (sighs) 
Your family is from Iran. What is the Persian tradition of eulogizing and of commemorating the passing of a family member? There's an extraordinarily rich tradition. In the old days, people would even hire mourners alongside to make sure that there was a great deal of commotion <laughs> devoted to the, the dying, uh, to the passing of, of uh, the loved one. Um, but it, the key markers are the mourning goes on for 40 days and then is commemorated every year. You've written a book about the poetry of mourning, about how poets write about death. Yes, it's seemed to me a fascinating area to explore uh, as mourning rituals became hollowed out in much of Western society. It seemed to me fascinating that it's in poetry that you find some of the most um, complex, some of the richest, some of the most complicated and vexed expressions of grieving. From the famous Sylvia Plath, who because of an extremely uh, vexed and ambivalent relationship with her father, um, kind of yells out in a famous poem, Daddy, Daddy, you bastard, I'm through, at the end of a poem, uh, to Robert Lowell, who was one of her teachers, uh, mocking his father, um, saying, anchors away, Daddy boomed in, in, the, in his bathtub, uh, up through contemporary poets, more, much more recent poets, such as Seamus Heaney, who mourned uh, those who died in the, the troubles in Northern Ireland. You know, they always say when you lose your parents, you feel your own mortality. In the years since you lost your father, that was the fall of 2016, in the years since you lost him, have you had glimpses of your own mortality? Sure. Uh, I've. It feels almost as if that mediating, almost protective figure between myself and death is gone. And now you know, I'm much closer to death. It's almost as if there's a kind of nakedness uh, in uh, facing it. It's interesting that we can know that it's coming and we can know that our feeling of our own mortality is coming, but we can't truly understand or experience it until we pass through. That's really true. And yet, again, going back to the poetry, if we think of someone like Keats, uh, thinking on easeful death, up to very recent poets as well, poetry is a very rich place for uh, mourning and reflecting on one's own mortality. Finally, the writing of poetry is can be seen as a way to uh, attempt to grapple with um, annihilation. But there's also a longing for rituals that we can plug into so that we can do justice to the person who has died. I think it's easy to feel at loose ends when you have the creativity to do anything and think, I can think of nothing. Absolutely. And I think then you just need to, I found myself when my father died, sifting through old photographs, sifting through old emails. Uh, it's the hardest, one of the hardest things, I think, for me and maybe for others as well in the loss of, say, a parent or a loved one, is to get the picture whole, to put all those disparate pieces together again. And I think it's a really important part of the grieving process. Jahan Ramazani, 
Thank you for sharing your time with me. Thank you, Sarah. Jahan Ramazani is the Edgar F. Shannon Professor of English at the University of Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. In sports, a playbook is a set of plays that a team has practiced and is prepared to call on during a game. Athletics is a lot about preparation. But as basketball coach Brian Henderson learned, there are some things in life we can never be prepared for. Henderson is athletic director at Patrick Henry Community College and the author of There's No Playbook for Death, Recovering from a Loss. In it, he grapples with the tragic deaths of both a player and a fellow coach and offers guidance for others who are experiencing grief and loss. Brian, tell me how you first came to recruit Ruth for your basketball team. You weren't there for her in the beginning. No, just as any coach does, you know, we go looking for players. Uh, I was there looking for one player in particular that had reached out to me. I wanted to see what she was about. I wanted to see if she could play. Uh, Fortunate for me, I also got the chance to meet Ruth. And when I met her, standing at six feet tall, a young lady who had a lot of raw ability, I knew that she was someone that I wanted on the court for me, uh, not knowing that she would grow as close to me as she did. What did you need to persuade her of in terms of where her strengths were as a basketball player? Just believing in me. Um, you know, the the personality that she had was so closed. It was very rugged. So she <laughs> would not listen to me at all at first because we didn't have that relationship. Until we built a relationship off the court, that's when we started to see everything on the court start to thrive. Was there a moment when you realized your relationship with her had turned? Yes, when she came to church for me in Danville, Virginia, where I'm, where I'm originally from. She came to church, and not only did she come to church, she held my daughter the whole service. And uh, my daughter was, she was barely, I believe, eight or nine months at the time. She embraced her like it was her little sister. And I felt like that was a good turning point for us. We came and we had dinner after at uh, my family's house, and, and you could see her start to gain more, more confidence on the court. You could see her build better relationships with professors in the classroom and, and work harder in her class, and it just all turned around. It seems like right when you were happiest, when your relationship was at its peak, you got terrible news. Would you tell me about that day? Uh, I received a phone call from my random number, and it happened to be the police department. And, you know, I'm thinking, was it a traffic issue, violation issue, uh, or did somebody, um, you know, steal something from a store? But as he asked me, you know, did I know Ruth Omalola? I am Coach Henderson, correct? And I said, yes, I am. He went on to say, you know, there's been a, a incident that occurred. And, you know, he told me that she was in a bike accident. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, is, you know, she going to be okay? 
And of course, he uh, went on to say, um, it's pretty serious. Uh, currently, Ruth is unconscious, and she's currently in a helicopter heading to the hospital. I remember my wife just grabbed my arm because I was shaking. But I knew at the same time, I had to channel my emotions to contact the parents, talk to them. So I called her father. And, and in my mind the whole time, I'm trying to hold on to hope, but I'm also knowing that's a chance that I'm not sending his daughter back home the same way that I came and got her. And uh, he immediately got on the road with his wife, and they immediately came down. He also did something else on the phone. He prayed. He, he said a quick prayer. He said a quick prayer. And um, there was a lot of prayer. We all prayed together plenty of times, um, all the way to the end. Um, you know, those prayers gave us, I, I feel like, three more days to try to prepare for the inevitable. But as I name my book, I mean, there's no playbook for death. I felt like I let the family down. I didn't send her back the same way that I came to get her. I didn't do everything that I promised for. I promised that I was going to give her an education. I was going to give her an opportunity to play ball, and I was going to give her an opportunity to move on. Well, that moving on opportunity got cut short. No way for me to save her. It was, you know, I, I try to ask myself, could, could I provide the student athletes more for them to do? But it was not like she was doing something bad that this happened. This was a freak accident of riding a bicycle, something that we all have done as kids. But it hit me even harder because I couldn't express my emotions. I had to hold everything in. How can I express my emotions and expect her teammates to be strong when they see how weak I really am right now? Um, how can I talk to somebody about moving forward, it's going to be okay, but yet I'm depressed and anxiety is at an all-time high. So I had yeah. to keep all these feelings dormant. I kept my door, my office door open. There was all we had at that time, maybe 140 student athletes. I'd probably say 60 of them were female, so of course, Majority of the females all would stop by my office every day, whether it was a hug and a cry, whether it was sitting on the couch just to just to sit there, sometimes not even talking, whether it's sitting on the couch and talking. But then also faculty members who were coming to check on me uh, as we were in the hospital for those three days until until they decided to uh, that it was time because she was brain dead. There were so many faculty members and professors that came to the hospital to sit with us, and it was, it was tough. Just as you were trying to recover from the loss of Ruth, two years later, your former mentor and good friend and colleague, a coach at your school, died suddenly. That also affected you a lot. You know, I wrote this book, this part one to this book, just as an outlet for myself. She hit me hard, so I had to find an outlet. Two years later, I find that I got a part two to this book because now I got to deal with death all over again. What was his name? His name was Coach Kenneth Wade. You got a call in the middle of the night, 
and you thought, this can't be good. It's him calling because it was his number. Yeah, I, first thing I said was, what's up, Kenny? What these boys do tonight? <laughs> so, and that's how we always start the conversation. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what, if it's at 2, 3 in the morning, what what the kids do? What we got yeah. to take care of or what? Well, then I hear this voice, uh, and everyone calls me BH. You said BH. It's not. It's not Kenny. This. This me. His sister. I immediately, I just felt this lump in my throat, this emptiness in my stomach, because I know that this next statement was not going to be something that I was ready for. And she said, "We lost him. He got in a car wreck." Um, we lost control of the, of the truck, and we lost him. He didn't make it. How do you prepare for that? I mean, people say that you, if you see it coming, it's easier, but to get a phone call in the middle of the night uh, for someone that was 40 years old that you just talked to the day before and laughed and joked, it just is heartbreaking. Um, you just re- you start to remember when was the last times you saw him, and we had just recently took a a staff um, trip just to kind of bond and get ready for the year. And all I could think about was him ziplining across, even though he was scared, or him in a raft with me, uh, and just laughing and having a good time. And all I could do was remember seeing that. Those laughs and smiles, but then you got to think about what's next. Who else is hurt by it? You write that you held it together through this period, but afterward, there were times when you privately just broke down. It, it, I had anxiety. I was depressed, but I opened the door and no one would know it because I'm smiling I'm making sure I'm smiling if someone else is coming to me that you can see is depressed and that just need that shoulder. But when that door shuts again and I sit there and I try to do some work, it's all over again. I could not sit in my office. There was a point in time in October that I did all the work mobily. I was on the move. I was not in the office. I if I came into the doors of Stone Hall, I immediately had this sick feeling in my stomach because right down the hall, if I yelled his name, he was no longer going to answer. It was tough. I didn't go back in the gym. For a long time, I didn't work out. But I still had a job to do. And there was three little ones that I had to figure out a way to get back to the the father that they knew. Not coming home drained because my energy was just zapped from just mentally being exhausted. Not wanting to play with my kids when I got home just because I just didn't want to. I just wanted to lay down or find something to do to take my mind off of these feelings. I think talking about it has help close the wounds because I'm able to actually express it and talk about it without feeling sad, but talk about it, understanding that we had some great times and those are the memories that I'm definitely going to hold on to. And as you write, it's not just about the coaching, it's about life. 
one of the hashtags that I use is that it's bigger than ball. We can recruit a kid. We can play a kid on that court. That kid can help us win plenty of games, win championships. But then what? Are we done with that kid? Is our relationship over? No. Everything that we do for these individuals daily as coaches, as administrators, as professors, as teachers, as friends, as colleagues, it's bigger than that ball. If we're just doing it just for the ball, we're not doing our jobs. It's bigger than ball. Brian Henderson is athletic director at Patrick Henry Community College and the author of There's No Playbook for Death, Recovering from a Loss. Coming up next, the story of a foster care system told from the inside out. The addiction crisis is raging on across America and in many places taking a toll on children. Regions that once had a few dozen children in foster care now have 500. Wendy Welch is a professor at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. She's the author of Fall or Fly, the strangely hopeful story of foster care and adoption in Appalachia. It's based on interviews with more than 60 social workers, parents, and children who've gone through the foster care system in her region of coal country. Help me understand the big picture for what's broken about the foster care system in Appalachia. The system that we're working under now, there's no capacity to take care of 500 children in my district, so three counties, 500 kids, every single one of which has living parents. They're incapacitated or incarcerated because of opioids or other substances. So 500 kids who need a place to go. This is the first damage of opioids and substances in wrecking the foster care system. The system was set up to take care of people who were orphaned. Now children are bouncing. There's a a law that says you have 24 months from the time a child enters foster care to either involuntarily or voluntarily terminate the rights of the parent or return that child to their parents. They either get adopted or they get returned or they get placed in permanent foster custody. The problem with this law, and it's a federal law, is that the parent will get clean, the child will go back, the parent will blow it. Does the clock start over, or have they used up six of their 24 months, right? That's what's causing a lot of the bouncing through the system, is this inability to determine when to say no. I've heard you say that it's a truism that if you take a child from a biological home You're opening a wound that cannot heal. Yes, but sometimes you have to do that. We go back to parents don't stop loving, but they stop being able to take care of bio parents who are addicted. So you have an eight-year-old who is old enough to boil water, knows how to slide a pizza into and out of an oven without getting burned. Her mama is out of it three days a week, but this child knows how to write a check, 
right? There's a story in my book of a girl named Amy who was doing that. She was the adult in charge of her mom. She was paying the rent. She was buying the food. She was cooking the meals. She knew how to do that. If Amy had been four instead of eight, Amy would have gone into foster care because if you can't keep your child physically safe, that's become the standard. It used to be a higher standard. If you were in a house that didn't have running water, if you were in a house that's what one of my friends calls nasty, if you were in difficult circumstances, if you appeared at the ho- in school with bruises on you, you got whipped out of your house. Um, you don't now. Nowadays, a lot of the reasons that children enter foster care is it's not safe for them to stay in the home with their parent because the parent is incapacitated and the child's going to get hurt. They're going to get burned. They're going to get abused by another person who's visiting the home, or they're going to walk out one evening in search of something and somebody's going to pick them up. It's literally a safety thing. And you write that the social workers tell you it's so different now than it was in the 80s or 90s Mm -hmm. in how children are identified and brought into the system. Mm -hmm. In the 80s and 90s, you had teachers as the primary first responder. They saw bruises, they saw neglect, they saw long-term lice. It's, It's not a shame to have lice, it's a shame to have lice for more than three weeks. They saw children whose needs were not being met, who came to school with thin shoes in winter, this kind of thing. Nowadays, social workers are being asked to ride along as police go on drug raids. And they are literally removing kids from homes when the parents are being arrested. So it's three in the morning, there's a siren blaring, the parent appears in the paper in the busted column in the next week. And it's much more traumatic than a teacher keeping you inside during recess and saying, so tell me about what you eat on the weekends. You know, that's a gentle question. being wakened in the middle of the night by a siren and someone saying, come with me, honey, it's okay, I'm a social worker, here's your coat, that's a whole different way of entering foster care, and it's terrifying for the kids. People told you that some foster parents with too many teenagers is a bad sign. Social workers will tell you when you see teenagers piling up in a home that's not a group home, that's a pattern that usually means one thing over another. There are exceptions, but that's usually a pattern that means that these people are interested in older children who are capable of work either inside the home or outside the home. At the ranch, uh, the mother had six foster children, which is just below the limit where you have to get a group home license. They were sharing one boy room, one girl room, And then her daughter had her own room, her bio daughter. Um, That's not the worst thing everyone, anyone's ever heard, but the optics are bad. (laughs) So the social worker showed up to take a kid to an appointment and the kid was starving, asking if they could go to Hardee's. And it turned out that he didn't like what they had for dinner at the house very often. It was usually a canned green beans and canned potatoes and then some some form of meat thrown into the mix and the girls living in the house were doing the canning so on the one hand you've got okay this awesome place where people are being taught work skills that are important on the other hand all six of those kids the three girls and the three boys were paying rent to their foster mom they had jobs in fast food and they had one car that they shared some work nights some work days and they were in some cases, missing school in order to make their shifts. So 
he went in and he investigated the house and he basically came out and said to me, Wendy, I know what the people who read this book are going to say. Why didn't that social worker get those kids out of that house? That's a bad house. They're not being invested in. They're not, it's not okay for them. He said, I'll tell you why. Because they were clean. They were dry. They were warm. Nobody else was sleeping in their beds but them. Where did you think I was going to take six teenagers and put them in a safer place than the one they were in? No, their emotional needs are not getting met, but that's the best we're going to do right now. Are you saying the parents were doing this for money, for the monthly check? He was talking about that. That's not always the case. I asked almost everyone I interviewed that question, and I got between 30% and 70% of foster parents were in it for the check. There are people who genuinely want to do this, feel called to do this, and can't afford to do it unless they get a check. And that's different than being in it to get the check. They spend the check on the child. They may spend part of the check on the rent for their house. And they may actually have entered this contractual obligation because they realize this is the only way they're going to pay their rent. But they are emotionally supporting the child. And that makes all the difference. If you're paying attention to that child's emotional needs as well as their physical needs, you are an awesome foster home. You've also said that we're losing an entire generation and maybe two of people with parenting skills in some of these regions, that the opioid crisis has wiped out an entire generation Mm -hmm. and is about to wipe out another. How so? Oxycontin hit in the late 80s. People who did not know that they were at risk for addiction were taking their prescriptions when they hurt their backs in the coal mine or they hurt their backs driving a school bus. And they fell into this addiction lifestyle. And their kids grow up through foster care. They come out of foster care probably not having seen a good parenting example following their parents. Or they have, but it's been disjointed, right? So they're they're probably dealing with some trauma from what happened to them, unless they just lucked out. What are they going to do with their kids, right? So they raise babies who go into the foster care system when they're two or three years old. Because they themselves become addicted? They either become addicted or they simply don't have the skills. We've lost the generation that was raised by their grandparents, and we've lost their We are now losing their kids. The solutions that I saw working were when social workers had an appropriate caseload. In some of the places, they were up to 37 kids. That's too many. Take them down to 15. They, they were awesome, by and large, those social workers. And so were the foster parents. They were awesome. But they're not saints. They're people doing their job, doing the best they can. And their eyes, in the best instances, were on the kids. This is so important. Wendy Welch, thank you for telling us about this on With Good Reason. I hope some of you will become foster parents. Wendy Welch is a professor at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. She's the author of Fall or Fly, the strangely hopeful story of foster care and adoption in Appalachia. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. 
With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Find us in your favorite podcast app or go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.